Welcome to the School of Faith podcast. I'm Chris Nye. We're doing a Bible deep dive. We're in Daniel chapter 4. We've been marching through the book of Daniel, just doing the first six chapters, which are the narrative chapters of Daniel, as we study them in our midweek groups at Awakening Church. If you need more resources, we have a group's resources page on awakeningchurch.com, and we have a curriculum for the book of Daniel, which this is supposed to complement. So we don't have everything here, but I thought it'd be helpful for us to do a deep dive into the background and backdrop for those of you in groups or leading groups to help you further understand the Bible or whoever else is listening to this, that you'd want to study and know the book of Daniel. I was able to teach this for a number of years at a Bible college over at the Oregon coast and so have everything kind of prepared and ready to go. We're in Daniel chapter 4, so if you are able, you can open a Bible and get there as we start Daniel chapter 4. Okay, Daniel chapter 4 continues through the narrative and actually opens with King Nebuchadnezzar telling all the people, nations and languages that dwell on the earth. He says, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Hmm. Starting out pretty good. Starting out pretty good. Let's approach some of this to give you some backdrop, um, because the way these chapters start are really telling, and there's actually unique literary features in chapter four that we have to pay attention to, that even in that first sentence, if you were kind of your normal Jewish um, boy, you know, or girl reading this at the time, uh, ancient in an ancient time, uh, you would have picked up on this. The first thing is actually there's a language difference here. There's a language difference switching back to Hebrew very briefly and then back to Aramaic. So there's a language difference in chapter 4. Secondly, did you notice that there's a narrator change? Yeah, you see, before this, we were kind of in a third-person slash Daniel narrator. If you remember this from chapters 1 and 2, right? We talk about, um, you know, Daniel is the... Yeah, the third-person narrator, but, you know, referencing himself in the third person, but it seems as though he's the authoritator uh, and the author behind everything. Um, Well, then, in chapter 4, see, King Nebuchadnezzar addresses himself right at the start. I'm King Nebuchadnezzar, and it seemed good to me to show this. And in verse 4, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace, as, as a king does, right? Like, kings just, they just prosper. That's what they do all day prospering in the palace. And so the narrator change is actually really stark. So that's a unique literary feature. So language difference, narrator change, and then there's actually um, extra biblical source material surrounding this chapter. What do we mean by that? Well, it's interesting the things referenced here in the book of Daniel in chapter 4, but also outside of chapter 4, that this is mentioned in some historical documents. This dream and this report from King Nebuchadnezzar is actually in some Babylonian history. So you have some crossover between this story in chapter 4 and some of the extra biblical or outside of the Bible writings about that time in Babylon. So it's kind of interesting and also gives this chapter a little bit of flavor as we're marching through the narrative uh, section, chapters 1 through 6. So right at this point in the early verses, verses 4 through 18, you get kind of a, 
a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and his search for interpreters. Now, if you've been reading faithfully at this point, which I'm sure you have, you should be thinking this again. (laughs) You should be like, okay, a dream, and then we're going to go to the Chaldeans, and they're going to fail, and Daniel's going to come back. You should be kind of in that zone. Now, don't fall asleep to that rhythm, because in the rhythm is actually a repetition, and repetition is essential to biblical interpretation. What is repeated should be emphasized and understood. I always say, the Bible, biblical writers, ancient scribes, ancient authors did not have bold, did not have italicized, did not have underlined, could not change the font. So what would they do when they wanted to emphasize something? They would tell you the same story over and over again. And they would kind of use some of the same language to help, hopefully help you get it. And I think one of the important things is at this point, it opens with Nebuchadnezzar saying like, I think the best thing I could have, I could do is share about how good God is and this many signs and wonders God has done in my midst. The fiery furnace, we've got several things at this point, right? The fiery furnace, we've got the interpretation of the visions, we've got Daniel's faithfulness and his example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And actually, as it begins, like, it kind of thinks, wait, we should, we should maybe be going, wait, has Nebuchadnezzar gotten it at this point, right? Has he repented? Does he know and follow the ways of Yahweh? Well, think we should probably show some clues here that he has not okay he has not really gotten it he has not really followed the uh, ways of Yahweh the first is that in verse 8 he actually goes to the Chaldeans for first right for his interpretation if you look back at verse 8 it says at last Daniel came in before me he who is named Belshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods now hold on the spirit of the holy gods And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw. Before that, he mentions that he goes to the Chaldeans in verse 7, okay? Then the magicians, the enchanters, and the Chaldeans uh, all came in. I told them the dream, but they, they could not make it known. So right before the verse about Daniel, about him seeking Daniel, he goes to the Chaldeans as if they haven't failed him like four times up to this point. Secondly, did you notice what he called Daniel? He called Daniel Belteshazzar, which is the Babylonian name that he and his compatriots gave him to try to enculturate him into the Babylonian ways. So (laughs) he's not calling him by his Hebrew name which has deep meaning to it. Um, He's calling him by his Babylonian pagan name. So it might seem small, but man, in the Bible, names are huge. And so him saying, uh, then I called Daniel in, the one called Belteshazzar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that should make us kind of perk up and go, okay, hold on. While he starts off really strong in verses one, two, and three, by the time we get to four through eight, he's going to the Chaldeans yet again. He is uh, referencing Daniel's Babylonian name and then do the good biblical work I always tell students to do. It's very simple biblical interpretation. You ready for this? This is your advice. Keep reading. Keep reading. Just keep going because by the time you get 
to chap- the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, you will see that this man has not repented, that this leader is still groveling in his pride, seeking uh, wisdom outside of Yahweh, and ruining the um, Babylonian Empire. So, it's pretty clear by the time we're getting to the dream interpretation that we're dealing with an unrepentant leader, which is why then when his dream comes, we shouldn't be super surprised, okay? Do you get what I'm saying? We shouldn't get super surprised that we get this dream about a tree that's growing, and in verse 13, it says, I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, proclaiming this, chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave a stump of its roots of the earth. Now, we should not be surprised because the dream is communicating. See, see, this is what you do when you read the Bible carefully and slowly. The dream is interpreting what you should already know. See, by the time you get to the dream, ver- the verses of the dream interpretation, which start around verse 10, the first nine verses should already tell you that this man is worshiping foreign gods, seeking wisdom from Chaldeans, and uh, claiming Daniel as his own possession, Belteshazzar, right? So I, that's where I think some of the um, some of the interpretation needs to lie because by the time you get to this vision, you should be very kind of clearly going, okay, yeah, this makes sense. He's like a tree who's gone to far in his kingdom and needs to be cut down. He needs to be brought down and low. He needs to be humbled. Now, let me ask you this. What do you think of when you think of an element that has gotten too tall and too strong and too mighty and must be chopped down and scattered about? You should be thinking about the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. Have you, do you remember this story? Maybe you've never heard it before. Way back in Genesis, and this, of course, would have been very well known uh, to the writer of Daniel, let alone Daniel himself. But back in Genesis chapter 11, it said, Now the whole earth had one language. This is Genesis 11 verse 1. The whole earth had one language and the same words. It says that people were migrating from all around, and they said that they should come and put bricks, burn them thoroughly, make them into stone and mortar, and that they should uh, build a tower. It says, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And here's the key line here. Um, And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. And the Lord sees this, sees the city that they're building and the motive in which they're building it, which is to, quote, make a name for ourselves. And he scatters them about. Now, this might seem, I think every time I lead people through the story of the Tower of Babel, it makes God seem a little um, self-conscious, a little mean, and maybe small-minded. And yet, we have to remember who God is. He is our creator, And for us to live the life of full joy is to live in partnership and relationship with him. To live outside of a relationship with God and to be self-sufficient is disastrous to the human race. And so you might think this is like God being competitive, but it's not. 
It's actually God seeking the joy of all people because the joy of all people is not self-sufficiency. It's not ruining yourself, building a name for yourself. It's in laying yourself down in service to God and others. God knows this because he created the created us and his deep desire is that we would find this in him and in partnership with him. And he sees Nebuchadnezzar as continuing this plight of self-sufficiency and self-aggrandizing. And he looks at Nebuchadnezzar and he gives him this vision and says, you're going to be chopped down. And Daniel's interpretation is precisely this, right? And again, how does Daniel know this interpretation? Because he is gifted for sure. But again, and I want to always point us back to this, he knows the Bible. Granted, in a different way through probably oral tradition and, uh, you know, scrolls, the reading of scrolls. But the Torah was was probably memorized by Daniel before he even uh, went into the Babylonian school. He, he knew so much of the um, biblical story. And you have to know for certain he knew the Tower of Babel. And when he hears the dream about a large element being built to the highest of heights, gathering all creatures from the world, and that there is a watchman or a holy one saying, cut it down. I don't think it takes extreme gifting for Daniel to just go, this sounds like Babel. And this is how Daniel interprets the dream. He sees the messenger who's reducing the power of the king to a stump and sees this metaphor then of a beast that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be humiliated in some way. His advice, uh, or his interpretation is found in verse 22. It is you, this is chapter 4, verse 22. It is you, O king, Daniel says, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. You see, this is, this is him just going, you know, the Holy One coming down from heaven saying, chop it down. This is God saying to humble you, that you shall be driven out from among men and you will be thrown out essentially, right? Now, the advice that Daniel gives is also rooted in the story of the Tower of Babel and rooted really throughout the Psalms and the prophets. It's found in verse 27 here. Daniel says this, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You see that? He's not saying do this so that you become a Hebrew like me. Do this so you become a good Jew like me. He's saying do this because when people live in the ways of God, showing mercy to the oppressed, living a righteous life, you prosper. This is the way God has designed you to live, Nebuchadnezzar, he's saying. And so just live the way God, this is by the way found in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the promise to the righteous life. It's actually the rubric for the entire book of the Psalms. And if you go there, you can read, you can read this, Psalm uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now look at this, verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And this metaphor of the tree, if you notice very carefully, 
It's not about the height of the tree, but the depth of the tree and where it's connected. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. The metaphor of the tree in Psalm 1 is not about the height of the tree, but the depth of the tree and where it is connected. The depth of the tree is, quote, planted by streams of water and yields its fruit in its season. Yields its fruit in its season. That means there are seasons where it doesn't yield fruit because it's not its season. And the life that God has asked us to live is a life in depth with him, rooted in him, abiding in him, is the word Jesus uses in John 15. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me as a vine to a branch. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? That our interconnectedness with God and our humility before him is paramount. And we will bear fruit in, its se- in our own season, And we will not bear fruit during certain seasons because that's what a tree does. But it doesn't get ahead of itself. And it doesn't go into the highest of the heights. It goes into the depths, into relationship with God. That's where Daniel calls him to at the end. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy. Again, verse 27, Daniel chapter 4. And this might, he says, perhaps it might, perhaps, I love that. He's like, that's your best shot. Like your best shot is to live a life in service to God and others, which is righteousness, right relationship with God, right relationship with self, neighbor, rest of creation. That's what righteousness is. Daniel's big call here is like an allusion to Psalm 1, I believe. And also, you know, a lesson that's taught over and over again throughout the Old Testament, which is that pride corrupts. Pride corrupts. There's a danger in pride. And that that's kind of probably the most important thing. There's a, another psalm. If we were in chapter 1, you can go to chapter 10. Psalm chapter 10, verse 4 says this. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God, and all his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways do not prosper. God's ways prosper, right? Yeah, in verse 2, chapter 10, it says, In arrogance, the, wi- the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught, the psalmist is praying. Let them be caught, right? For the wicked boasts in the desires of his soul, and the greedy one gain uh, for gain curses and renounces the Lord. All throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs too, the Proverbs are deep warnings against pride. Famously, um, Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. So it doesn't, see, it doesn't, Daniel's not a genius. Daniel knows God. And he knows his word to say pride is corrupting us. And it's corrupting Nebuchadnezzar. And so to just hyperlink some of these stories helps you understand the theology that is built into Daniel's brain, which is why he's able to interpret these dreams and let Nebuchadnezzar know where to go from here, which is to say, man, you know, um, repent of your ways. Unfortunately, right, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't as, as you finish the story that he's walking on the roof of Babylon and the king answers and he just says this to himself in verse 30. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built, 
by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory and majesty. It says in verse 31, while the words were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven and it's God saying, the kingdom has departed from you, Nebuchadnezzar. So the fulfillment of the vision, Daniel warns him, he says, your best bet is to pursue righteousness, to serve the poor, to worship God and repent. He doesn't. He says, how great is this kingdom that I've built? He does not learn his lesson, and the fulfillment happens so quickly. King's lesson is in verse 37, though, because then Nebuchadnezzar, right, he goes, he kind of turns into a strange beast roaming the earth. He's got, like, nails, like bird claws. It's kind of just this disgusting picture of self-aggrandizement. What can happen when a leader pursues his own name above all else is that you turn into a monster, you literally turn into a monster. And this, this is how Daniel kind of personifies the wickedness of Nebuchadnezzar. But it says in 34, he finally lifts, at the end of my days, it says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And he gives this insane and beautiful, almost mirror from chapter two of what Daniel says about God Um, is here on Nebuchadnezzar's lips. And again in 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and more greatness was added to me. It says, to be praised and extol the honor of the kingdom, king of heaven, for all his works, Yahweh's works, are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So you get this roller coaster of a story of Nebuchadnezzar prospering in his pride, not learning his lesson in a dream, God humbling him to show him his grace, and then restoring Nebuchadnezzar as he recognizes the grace of God. When you hear the story of a rich ruler, who is cast out into utter darkness, taking the likeness of an animal, feeding as if with the animals, and then returning home to be seen as a king to prosper? Are you thinking of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? Because maybe you should be. In Luke chapter 15, in fact, uh, we get the story of the young man who squanders his inheritance And Jesus says, goes about and feasts with the pigs. He's actually eating out of the troughs of the animals. And, you know, hidden in that story is a parallel uh, to the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Luke chapter 15. It says that the young man, in verse 17, Luke 15, 17, but when the young man came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. Yeah. I will arise and go to my father. It says that the young man came to himself or came to his senses. Back in Daniel chapter 4, twice it says, My reason returned to me. What is humility other than the return to reason? What is humility other than coming to our senses? Humility is the accurate self-perception. In light of God, we see ourselves. 
In light of God's majesty, power, and grace, mercy, and love, we see our limitations. Man, that's the beautiful lesson of Nebuchadnezzar, is that Nebuchadnezzar finally gets to the place of lowest humiliation, which is where he connects with God. I was asked recently, what does it mean to meet God? What do you mean by meeting God, right? I say this sometimes in evangelical circles, right? Like, I met God. And I think I can define meeting God as coming to the end of yourself. Is that right when you come to the very end of yourself is where you get the beginning of God. And I see this in Nebuchadnezzar and in the story of Daniel in particular. For all his works are right and his ways are just, which is to say, my way is not right. I'm quoting the end of chapter four, by the way. Which is to say, my ways are not right. And those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. That's good news. And that's Daniel chapter four.